One, two, three. Hi there, I'm with Michael Paluk today. <laughs> did I pronounce that correctly or did I pronounce it completely wrong? What you said was your name and my surname. Well, my mistake. <laughs> I'm here today with <laughs> Ben Paluk. <laughs> Alright, one, two, three. So hi, today I'm with Ben Paluk. Uh, tell me a little about yourself, Ben. I am an osteopath. I made him say it because I couldn't pronounce it correctly. <laughs> How long have you been a uh, osteopath? Well, I finished my master's in 2016. Mm -hmm. That's when I started calling myself an osteopath. But your father's an osteopath as well. Sort of. My mm. father's a physical therapist. Okay. And how does that different? How did how is that different to what you currently do? Well, I did an osteopathic degree. Sure. To call myself an osteopath. Sure. And he didn't. Sure. But practice-wise, is there a big difference for people who don't know anything? Um, the reality behind osteopathy is there's huge diversity in what an osteopath may or may not do. Mm. So what potentially sets osteopathy apart from a general term like physical therapy is it means that somebody's done a medical degree. Mine was four years long mm. and they've been taught general medicine and general treatment. Okay. Which, depending on the university, has different focuses on technique. And how much of what you practice today is things you've learned as courses or ad as additions or stuff you pick on, picked up just as you treat people? Mm. Well, so my father started teaching me his style mm -hmm. when I was four years old. Mm -hmm. uh, as any martial artist. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's where my particular group of techniques differs maybe to what somebody would normally do in a standard four-year degree. Mm -hmm. So he started teaching me when I was four. And I started working on members of the public with him shadowing, me shadowing him when I was eight. Okay, like an understudy. Like an understudy, like an apprentice. Um, Did you get paid at least? No, of course. Well, you know, house, food, clothes. Okay. Well, I mean, that's required <laughs> by the government. Apart from that, no, I, no. Okay. So hard labor since eight. <laughs> and probably around 17, 16, 17. That's when I started to actually work more independently mm -hmm. and start to differentiate my style from his. Okay. What do you mean started to, to differentiate your style from his? So up until that age, I did exact, very, very similar techniques to what he would do. Mm -hmm. And also when I first started working uh, which are we are saying eight years old, um, then it was more massage based rather than I'm treating an injury or I'm helping somebody with a long standing condition. Okay, that's interesting. So it wasn't until I was around 16, 17 that I was actually starting to help people with aches and pains. Oh, that's really cool. How did, how did it make you feel? I started to find standard 
massages. Mm-hmm. Boring. Okay. Or I should say less rewarding. And helping people through pain or helping them achieve better states of health became much more interesting and engaging to me. And that also shifted my focus on different techniques to use with people. Also, with a massage, mm. the direction of the treatment lies more in what the individual wants rather than what's necessarily a discussion of what's best for their health. That is really interesting. Can you give an example? So say somebody might go for a massage and say, I have tight shoulders and a tight back. Great. Mm. So then the person massages those muscles. Of course. But or, it's, yeah. more commonly, they might say, or a better example, somebody might say, I have a tight neck. Mm. So then you massage the neck. But often, tight necks are caused by tight backs. Mm. 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 But you but don't massage, realize it. Yeah. You don't feel it in your ne in your back. You feel it in your neck. So a massage therapist doesn't have the necessarily the option to say or diagnose where the problem's coming from well that's really fascinating to me because i think a lot of people go into therapy thinking that their underlining problem from their knee is actually just their knee mm. in reality it's either their hip or sometimes even their foot mm -hmm. depending on on what the element is and how, how long did that take you to realize was that something that was already included in the course as you were doing it if we're talking about the course, then we're talking about my father's training. Okay, well, course <laughs> as in the university you attended. Well, so my father obviously told me that from a child, hmm. um, that pain and pain is a signal. Hmm. And it's some information. But it's not always the problem. Hmm. And the cause of pain isn't always at the site of pain. So those concepts I grew up with. Um, in osteopathy as a whole, it's about the interconnections between all systems in the body. Mm. So really from day one, they would pretty much say what you beautifully put. That a knee symptom isn't necessarily coming from the knee. And there may be, if not causative, but knock-on effects to the hip and the ankle. That's so pretty much day one. So I, I think the, the sad thing about this industry is that there's a lot of marketing words and a lot of hype that occurs, specifically stuff like fascia, right? I mean, if you went back to three years or even four years ago, mm -hmm. no one talked about it. Everyone, we still knew it existed, but only in the last three years or so has now that become like the highlight. Like this is like... All your elements comes from fascia, which I think it's simply not correct. Are you talking about the public opinion outside of, say, medicine? Exactly. Oh, yes. Yeah, so yeah, fascia yeah. is starting to become more public knowledge. Exactly. Well, well it's, it's a it's, hype term, right? It's, it's entering personal trainers' vocabulary. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's, that's the sad part about it. Because it becomes whatever is hyped on Instagram and social media. Right. That's when then people just go, well, it must be that, you know? Because like, it doesn't mean anything. Exactly. It's on like, its own. It's like that, that, that um, rotator cuff. Everyone says, I have an injury with, with my shoulder rotator cuff. Okay. What, what, <laughs> <laughs> what most people don't even know what it means or... <laughs> now, that, that's actually what, you, what it sounds like you're Describing. talking about mm. is one of the most prevalent problems in the way that 
<laughs> I'm going to say Western culture, at least, approaches health and medicine. Mm. It's buzzwords. And fixation on buzzwords and even labelled diagnosis often excludes the context. So if we're talking about, what should we use? Should we choose rotator cuff? Sure. Okay, somebody says, or let's say they've been diagnosed via some imaging and orthopaedic testing that they have a rotator cuff injury. Mm. Supraspinatus, let's go for it. They have a supraspinatus tear. Great. Why? Why? And it's not always because, oh, they lifted something funny or their dog pulled the lead. Because if they've lifted something many, many times, and let's say they're in their 40s, and this is the first time they've had a rotator cuff injury, clearly it's not the lift. It's not necessarily the fact that the dog pulled on the lead. What's the greater context? What's the previous injuries? What's the previous elements involved? You know, absolutely. Exactly. And so the most... So there's a lot to get to get into. You don't just have physical stuff. You have nutritional stuff, hydration, diet, etc. You have mental stuff, mental state, where they stressed happy at the time that they hurt themselves. No, I mean, I, I totally agree. Past injuries. I totally agree. I totally agree. I, I mean, I think that's one of the key differences between Western and, let's say, Asian medicine. It is weird that we almost separate all medicine into either of those two categories. Like there's no medicine in, in the, north or the south. south, right? <laughs> it's just either West or Asia. That's all. West or East. Mental. Yeah. Eastern medical person with a headache. They will look at the whole body. What is going on? What type of imbalance and balance is, is there? Whereas you go to your pharmacist in the West uh, with a headache, you'll be given some painkillers. Okay. They won't necessarily ask or get into your hydration, uh, whether your neck is sore, etc., etc., etc. Whether you've been having a wonderful time clubbing and partying, and that's why you have a headache. It's symptom-based treatment yeah. seems to be the f or seems to often be the focus, rather than causality. But I think that's that's almost like a greater message to the zeitgeist of our times. It it seems almost like that we're obsessed of just finding an easy answer and just a pill for everything. You know, pill whether for every ill. Exactly. <laughs> Put it beautifully by Ben here. We want to punish effort. We don't want people to, to almost go out and, and put the work in. Protein shakes, uh, pills, all this kind of stuff, right? Where in reality, if you just had consistency and you just go there, you put the effort in, you'll get the reward. In every aspect of life, the pursuit of balance is the pursuit of health and happiness. Mm -hmm. Beautifully put. But if somebody's job is their passion, where their hobby has become their income, then I suppose it's harder to have a work-life balance. I totally agree. In terms of um, exercise in the gym, yeah, it's consistency. It's consistency, not a six-week transformation, which you can do. Sure. You can do. Sure. Um, it's easier to have a healthy outcome with something that has longer goals. Absolutely. But, um, Absolutely. It's, it's consistency. Consistency breeds health. The moment, you know, you do your six weeks and you go, well, I'm happy with the results. You're going to lose it. And it's going to and it's going to come back worse than ever. Mm -hmm. And you're just going to spiral into this almost like depression. 
And I think that's what we're also seeing a lot where people almost like want to fail or give up because they yeah, said, yeah. we've I've done the work Human for three boss. weeks. Exactly. I've seen some results. I kind of stagnate. I hit a plateau. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly I'm done. Yeah. And that's that's really, really sad. Also, high rates of injury. In, but uh, <laughs> absolutely. And then say to yourself, well, I'm gaining weight or I'm not being healthy or whatever. You add on then that factor of negativity and stress to your life. Yeah. And then finally you go, okay, well, I'm going to go do CrossFit. So you're already a high stress, mm. high stress state. You're just continuously adding to it. And then you're surprised when you're affected by stuff like burnout or depression or anything like that. There are some key movements that we as human beings should be able to do comfortably. Absolutely. One being a nice, well-aligned body weight squat. Mm -hmm. If our bodies can't do that movement without any weight... To then jump into the gym and start lifting weight, it's 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 at the very least we're not going to get the uh, muscle growth or fat loss that somebody would want. So, okay, or get injuries, obviously. So, how do you how do you explain then that a lot of people specifically talk about squats and say that uh, it's all about your your thigh to hip ratio? Mm -hmm. Is there truth to that, or is that just? Let's get the most health for the least potential injury. Bang for your buck. Exactly. Most bang for your buck. Let's not worry about knees and hip in terms of, oh... The, ro the ratios, yeah. No, the f let's, let's, let's move to focus to... Mobility. Mobility and alignment. Hmm. And... Hmm. But that doesn't mean that they don't have downsides. Exactly. Right? I, it, everything in life has excess exercise, mm -hmm. excess dieting, yeah. excess whatever. It comes a negative. I think that's what it is. I think there's there's also lack of balance as a mindset. Right? Absolutely. So let's 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 change topics a little bit. Mm -hmm. Let's take a, a random individual who's suffering from brain fog or suffering from migraines. What kind of advice could you give them that wouldn't be involved with drugs? Maybe going for a walk? Drinking more water? Oh, yeah. Always um, try mm. to get your one and a half as a minimum. One and a half liters minimum. Mm. Two liters is fantastic. Mm. It's fantastic. Mm. Uh, with the way I see health as those three different circles. Sure. Psychology, nutrition, and physical. Sure. I think physical is the easiest to work on. Sure. Maybe I'm biased to that with my job, but... If you can get your body in a better physical state, regardless of what physiological, regardless of what either migraineous or digestive, whatever related problem somebody has, you're going to feel better. If your physical body is in a better state, it's moving better, things seem to work better together, you're going to feel better. I totally agree. I totally agree. And then you can work on the nutrition. I totally agree. And balance that out. I, I mean, I, I don't... I would make a case and point and saying that your your bang for your buck that's going to probably do the best for you long term is working on your psyche and it's easy to mm -hmm. say you know oh uh, uh mental health and all, and all that kind of crap but nobody really knows exactly the right treatment option for every individual we just know ballparks of some things work well for this or with that or whoever uh, i i don't personally believe that that um drugs is the right solution for every case mm -hmm. and i think it's the right solution for some cases mm -hmm. but i think especially from stuff like depression and stuff like that 
sure, drugs is a, is a concrete option, and there's no denying that. But lifestyle changes can often alleviate a lot of that symptoms. Like, uh, they talk about this quite frequently, um, uh, insomnia. And that 90-something percent uh, of insomniacs can cure just by having a routine in their sleep. Yeah, sleep hygiene. Yeah. But again, it, it's, 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 it is fascinating how in this particular century almost, we don't pay any attention to things that can improve our lives as an individual basis. You mean long term? Long, we don't get taught that. We don't get taught that by generally by our parents. You know, we don't really get taught that by school. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Mm. We, we, we don't get really an, um, an owner's manual of the body. We just get, mm. right? We get put into it and then try your best luck. <laughs> and if you have an issue, then you got to hope that you know someone like Ben who, <laughs> who can help you along it. You're right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is about, like you're saying, there's not, some, there's not enough information on prevention. It's not, there's no culture for it. Further than just that, I mean, I, I forgot who said it, but the body is the, is, is the container for the soul. And you want to really have the best body possible, not just from a, from a perspective of, of, of beauty, but from a perspective of wellness. You know, mm -hmm. like, uh, if you have a body that's healthy, then you know how it is. You know, if, if for example, I can give you a great case. If you have a stomach ache for, let's say, six months to a year, eventually you've adapted to it. You've just accepted that this is part of your life and you yeah. don't think about it anymore. And then suddenly, for whatever reason, you change your diet, you change whatever, you don't have stomach pains anymore. That there's a huge almost relief of stress that mm -hmm. you can almost feel and you can go, wait a second, I, I, how could I have lived with this for the past however long? Yeah. Uh, I mean, also going back to uh, mental health. Each individual with mental health issues, they'll have their own particular series of things that's going to help them through it there isn't one answer for all people with depression or so, mental health illness so let's let's be very frank here mental health wasn't a thing really in in general society until what the 1990s 90 to the 2000s I mean, it depends how you look at it because you could talk about um oh, what do they call it with the bombing when the first world war shell shock sure Sure. Shell shock. But that that was mostly for soldiers with PTSD who has who has traumatic experience. They call it PTSD now. Sure. But uh, yeah. but the general public didn't have PTSD. The general it public yeah. there wasn't there, in the uh, hysteria was a thing that they used to talk about. Absolutely, absolutely. But mm -hmm. e even stuff like depression, of course it existed back then as much as it did now, but I don't know whether or not the ratios was the same. Yeah, we don't know. Exactly. And people often say, well, we, we're just a more open society and we talk about it more, which I, I don't think that's really the case. I, I don't think people in the 1920s, 30s, or 40s were idiots. I, I think they talked about issues in private, maybe, mm. and it wasn't documented in movies or TVs or news media. But still, it would have been kept in diaries or whatever. In art. Or in art, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, is, it is a really fascinating case. I mean, you yourself have worked with uh, uh, some big TV shows as well, right? I know you can't mention the name, but mm -hmm. uh, how has that been different than the practice of treating an individual? In fact, every production is different. Because each production is like its own business its own company absolutely but there must be different expectations as well yeah 
massively different expectations of what your role is in the production. Absolutely. So uh, can you speak a little to it or that? Exactly. So most of the time or more often within productions, it's so-and-so's in pain. Can you please make them feel better so they can do X, Y, Z scene? Or so-and-so was injured at some point. We now need you to help them for the duration of the production. And then after that, good luck to them. So that happens a lot. Whereas when I'm treating individuals who aren't, where the individual is essentially self-funding, then there's this collaboration where the individual says what their goals are. Of course. And they're often much more long-term of course. than a production would ever be. Of course. It's hard to help somebody in a production who has history or has a complex issue there's not enough time as you always say you know my treatment only goes 20 percent of the way the other 80 percent is on the individual mm -hmm. and I, I it's it's almost unfair on the on the individual from a perspective of of of, of the the production house because they don't really have time to do other things than being basically on set and maybe working out and that's about it there's not a lot of like free time to go do other things it, yeah, it, it obviously would depend on who they are in the film. But, of course. I mean, if they have to wear some strange costumes, of course. and it's direct there, whatever symptoms are directly because of those costumes and that particular scene, then you're doing your 20%, these numbers, whatever, you're doing your 20%, and 80% of the time, they're reversing any potential health um, development. Yeah, so they're, they're difficult. You're basically managing a continual injury. If I do my little bit, and let's say it's 20%, whatever, the individual's 80% doesn't have to take up 80% of their day. Like, brushing, the, brushing our teeth, for most people, is part of everyday life. Sure. It's a hygiene habit we do every day. Sure. So I'm assuming, I don't ask, I'm not the dentist, but I'm assuming these... Um, people in the film industry are brushing their teeth. So that they have time for that. Quite the assumption, man. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> so they may also have time for another five minutes or doing some general hygiene movement. It's possible. Okay, so what it's you're possible. saying, there's no excuse that you can't fit in the five minutes. Apart from forgetting and it's not a habit. Oh, sure. Apart from that. But uh, how much is your return on investment? What is what you would say is the optimum time invested into it? So I'm gonna I'm gonna really hone so in on this. So five minutes. You're saying five minutes mm. is definitely the best bang for your buck in general for most people. I don't know about definitely an achievable sure effort that does give you a good return on your on on your investment. But Ben, me and you both know that when people do something, when they've decided to do something, often go way overboard. That's true. Right? <laughs> you say five Boom minutes. Bust. Exactly. They say one squat, they do 50. Exactly. Yeah. And because they expect there's faster returns if you invest more into it. But that's sadly not always well, the case. Well, I mean, you were talking earlier, earlier about averages and how healthcare can often just be trying to hit for the middle of the bell curve. Absolutely. In terms of numbers. Absolutely. Um, there is there, there is a bell curve and how much you put in, the more you put in, to some extent, the faster you get a benefit. Sure. But after a certain amount, you're going to start to get plateau. the opposite. You either plateau or you'll get an injury. Sure. 
I mean, hanging is a, is a very common case. Uh, or doing pull-ups. If, if you go from a, st a state where you can't even maybe do one pull-up, mm -hmm. and you have to do cheating pull-ups, mm -hmm. to a state where you can do a pull-up, then you can do 5, 10, 50. And then eventually, you've become so adapted to it that in order to get the same benefits as you did previously, you'll start having to put weights on your ankles or your, or your, uh, or your stomach and, and doing it that way. And then the benefit that you might be referring to there is muscle growth. Of course. And muscle strength. Of course. Which is a continual growth curve. Of course. But health benefits, if we're just talking about, let's say, uh, general circulatory benefit, general joint benefit and whatever, that finished a long way before 50, a long way before 100, and definitely never needed any uh, additional weight. Absolutely. From a purely health point of view, I mean, one could argue if you can do one pull-up in your 80s, you're doing well. I totally agree. And uh, whether you can do 100 in your 80s and you have weights under you, underneath you, you're definitely stronger. So, so there's a guy not necessarily healthier. So there's a guy I forgot what his name was. Uh, his online persona is knees over toes guy. You can find him online. Um, he talks about that that generally people don't practice walking backwards, and the best indicator mm. of your risk of falling is your balance. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the best ways of training your balance is actually walking backwards. Fascinating. And he, he he does it with his mom, who's like 70 or something years old. And just uh, that alone has increased massively the mobility and the balance uh, for his mom. And I think these are things that everyone can do, but again, isn't taught. It's fascinating. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's so interesting. They talk about in terms of rehab exercises and eccentric, meaning... Say, for example, the biceps curl for the biceps is a concentric exercise. You mm -hmm. leave the weight in your hand, you lower it. It's the eccentric loading of the tendons as being the most efficient way of regaining strength in muscles. So walking backwards is like the eccentric exercise of walking. Forwards, absolutely. A wonderful idea. Absolutely. I mean, if, if you're really wild, you can put some weights and then like a, like a ski, mm -hmm. uh, walk backwards or jog even backwards while having that ski which adds an inter uh, load into it. It is a really, I've done it a few times, it's a really fascinating motion. Mm. And it also changed your, 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 the way you walk forwards, I've noticed. Fascinating. Yeah, I would really recommend you try I'll it, I walk ben. backwards out of here. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> it's going so well. <laughs> Let's move on to how is it as a business. I'm osteopathy. sure osteopathy as a business. I'm sure there's a lot of guys who are in their eight, 19, 18, even maybe in their 20s. Mm -hmm. What would you tell them? Is this a profession that's worth getting into at this point? Would you say, hey, you know what? Uh, this is well and it's good, but it's kind of dying. Where would you stand on? I this mean, is a business podcast after all. <laughs> <laughs> osteopathy is a no, it's not an easy degree, but it's a medical degree. If medicine and biology is challenging, you're going to find osteopathy challenging uh, as a degree course. In terms of a, of the profession, I would say osteopathy is still growing. It's still finding its place in society. Mental even image. awareness, yeah, even yeah. awareness of it, especially in the US and America. I, I'm. It's difficult to say. I, th I think that our diet, our environment, and our our ability to move has a huge impact on our health. Mm -hmm. how much it has to our life expectancy is an unknown. Is how often 
our physical structure is ignored. Totally agree. Where they totally were agree. talking about, I mean, digestive health, the impact of our physical position, posture and digestion is so often ignored. If, if you look at the office worker who slumped over their stomach just after eating, but yes, posture is often not included in healthcare. No, I totally agree. I mean, there's an, there's an argument to be made that the best posture is always the one that you're currently in because posture is supposed to be fluid. One way of looking at posture, you can simplify it to two different states. Active posture, let's say that's how you stand, sit and walk. Mm. And passive posture, if we took an MRI of somebody's spine, the, the degrees of curvature, the degrees of lordosis and kyphosis that that, that that individual has would be would call passive posture to separate the two concepts. I totally agree. I totally agree. I, I mean, we've we've moved a little bit away from it. I'm going to scare you back into business. How do you expect it goes? Should people focus on opening up their own practice, building their own uh, client list? What mm. is maybe the best way of building a client list? That well, really, you know, what's the most important thing in osteopathy is your network. Of course. How did you get the jobs working in film sets? All word of mouth. All word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And was it something that you asked them personally for and went like, hey, you know, I'm looking for doing X, Y, Z? Nope. So... Opportunities presented it to you. Exactly. So just simply through giving people treatments, them appreciating it, and then very kindly passing my details on and on and on and on and on. And eventually your name falls in certain people's laps. And there are so many different ways of working within manual therapy at the moment in the UK but those opportunities are still growing. Physiotherapists can work within the NHS, osteopaths can kind of get NHS contracts for certain things like I think they can still get it for lower back pain, I'm not certain on that, maybe you can bring that up somehow I will on the screen. Um, and I'm not sure whether chiropractors can have an influence with if you're watching the, the podcast, if you're listening, sorry, to the podcast and not watching the YouTube version, then, well, sorry, I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to add an audio sample to it. Watch it on YouTube if you want the visuals. So at the moment in osteopathy, as far as I'm aware, all osteopaths are self-employed. Mm hmm. And you can work within a clinic, mm -hmm. either with other osteopaths mm -hmm. or a mixed um, clinic with many different disciplines. Mm -hmm. Or you can set up on your own. Um, you can acquire an NHS contract. Mm -hmm. um, some people actually work within GP surgeries as mm -hmm. well. Um, you can do home visits. You can specialize in different... Um, sports, mm -hmm. football, rugby, whatever, pitch side. So there are many, many career options. So if somebody wants to do physical therapy as a profession, they should ask themselves what their other hobbies are and whether they can incorporate their other hobbies into their profession, whether and it's I was going to ask related that. whether they are violinist, Whatever they are, whether they are um, acting. Okay, then let's rephrase this question mm. then. Who isn't the profession for? 
somebody who doesn't like manual work. <laughs> really? <laughs> what about really... people? What do you mean by that? I'm, I'm assuming that if you're if you're a great, I don't know, uh, you love manual work, whether it's building stuff, something mm -hmm. like that, but you like doing it alone, I would not imagine that any kind of medical would probably good, be good for you, other than maybe surgery, arguably. Actually, what you've, that's an interesting point. Um, at the moment, osteopathy is a lonely profession. Even if you work within a clinic environment, you're, I think it's rare, there may be people doing it, it's unlikely that there's more than one professional in the room at the time, more than one osteopath in the room at the time. Mm. So it's, you're going to have to be comfortable um, independently working because the, the, as far as I know, there's not much collaborative work when you're treating a patient. There might be uh, that I'm not aware of. So it's one-to-one -one most of the time. Okay. It's an important thing to know. What kind of starting salary can they expect? It varies dramatically. So what would be the low end? What would be the high end? The low end would be zero. Okay. And the high end is limitless. Okay. It varies it, dramatically. Okay. <laughs> like I don't want to get into that. <laughs> okay. Then let's, let's go back a little bit and I'll try to hone in a few other questions for you. Mm -hmm. um, we now know what kind of individual would probably be good for this the medical field especially in in your field uh we also figured out wh who probably wouldn't be good you need to like to work with your hands sure you need to be comfortable touching other people i mean sure it's a, a good thing to and uh, to know you will be touching other people and how would you grow within manual therapy how do you grow as a practitioner both from your skill set and from your client base okay as an osteopath, you have to complete your continual professional development. I suppose what's helped me grow, personally, many different ideas within healthcare. Okay. And the medium that's helped me is actually YouTube. Oh, wow. And podcasts. That's what's actually helped my understanding of healthcare as a whole, especially during this weird few years we've been living in, when courses and and um yeah face-to-face -face courses have been limited if not stopped entirely would you like to give a call out to any youtube uh videos that you I'm enjoy a rogan fan yeah <laughs> <laughs> lex friedman's cool okay i mean bringing in lots of other ideas it's always fun from other professions other other places of thought like physics mathematics who okay. knows what you'll learn okay that might influence your strategy. and you don't know how it'll affect your practice you either now, Ben, obviously at different stages in your life, you have different amount of workload, both because of family life and health and everything mm. else. Now, looking back when you first started, mm. how many patients would you realistically see a week? Hmm. I never really worked it out or kept track. Remember, I started when I was a child as mm. well. Mm. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you already got the degree and you already finished oh, the course. Oh, once I got the degree. Absolutely. Well... Because of my father and apprenticing with him, I already had a client base. Pretty early. From the day I started. Sure. I just shifted my titles from um, therapeutic massage therapist to osteopath. Sure. So I already had an existing client base. Uh, and my work was mainly home visits 
Sure. And it still is mainly home visits. Sure. I mean, when me and you first met, it was actually at a clinic, believe That's it or true. not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, when I left university from the experience working in different clinics and health settings within the degree, mm. I was then curious to work within a commercial clinic, an osteopathic commercial clinic. And that's where I met Mike. A pleasure. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, that was busy. Those were half an hour slots. I remember, yeah. Mm. That was that was like you worked almost like a mule. It was just <laughs> in, out, like in, out, in, yeah, out. Yeah, it can feel like that. Um, that wasn't for me. I didn't enjoy that pace of work personally. I, um, I know some people who really love that pace. Um, that's the other thing. Within osteopathy, there are many ways of of conducting yourself as an osteopath. What techniques you use, how long you want to interact with the patient, past the point of fulfilling the safety requirements and the legal requirements. It's up to you how you work. I'm going to dig into that and I'm going to ask you, are you seeing more patients now or are you seeing less patients than when you first finished your degree? Well, when I worked... Obviously, I would imagine less because you yeah, said so half an hour working. at those clinics. Exactly. But I'm saying as when you left the clinic and you worked as a home practitioner. Mm -hmm. As in home visits? Yes. I would say I am probably am seeing more now. You know, work-life balance is difficult as well. Of course. Uh, it's hard to say no when somebody's in pain. Or it's, hard, it's really hard, actually. It's really hard to find the strength to say no and maintain such a thing as a day off. Hmm. Also, I'm, I'm also sure you to do. Note, as an osteopath, you may be working on the weekends. Mm, you may be working around other people's schedules. Five. I, I mean, it also depends on on the individual. I think if if you would get a phone call on Sunday, at, I don't know, at nine p.m., and the guy can't, I don't know, get out of his chair. Mm -hmm. then I think you're more inclined to go and see him rather than potentially someone who's just wants to have a session, I'd imagine. Yeah, if somebody says I want to have a casual treatment at 9pm, see me now, I'm unlikely to say yes, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm unlikely to say yes. But if there's an emergency, then I'm, I may go. Uh, what, was, what was the... Have you had these sort of emergencies mm -hmm. before? Yeah. And in what frame are we talking about? People not able to get out of the chair, uh, not able to get out of bed? I mean, so... With, Without naming names, obviously. Yeah, so with the difficulty or the increased difficulty in getting a face-to-face -face appointment with a doctor or even worries about what's going to happen when somebody goes to a hospital, it has put more pressure on manual therapists, or at least myself to go out and see people who've had some type of accident where they don't feel like they need to necessarily go to hospital but they would previously have gone to their GP. Yeah, that, that's increased. Say somebody's fallen over, somebody's suddenly woken up and they can't move their back or their neck. Yeah, that, that's increased because maybe when they would have gone to hospital before they don't, when they would have seen their doctor before they don't because they can't. Yeah, you that, can that clearly tell more. that Ben has been on shows before how smooth he is at transferring <laughs> one sh one topic to the next because he immediately know that I was going to ask him how did that affect how has COVID affect his career since then and I think you you almost touched upon it a little bit yeah 
I mean, there's all the um, PPE requirements, the personal protective equipment um, requirements, and... Uh, and it becomes yeah. a very more chilled version. We need to find a, a venue, a way, of, a way of finding a venue to do this. I totally agree. I totally, totally agree. Well, well I, I mean, is there anything else you want to add on? You know, yes, too much, and more than we have time for. Um, but this has been fantastic. Well, I'm happy uh, you enjoyed as a the experience. First talk. Yeah. Let's call this the introductory talk, uh, where we, oh, we, we we figure out what we want to talk about, <laughs> the topics. Well, we're generally a business-focused podcast. This is, this is the more. contents page yeah. of 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 our discussions. <laughs> well, uh, to be honest, I'm really happy the way it went because people get to see how you are, Ben. Within the podcast. Within situation. the podcast frame, of course, right in front of the camera of course <laughs> of course he he is generally more shy than this I'm behind the camera yeah yes. <laughs> in the backstage have better awareness of their ins and outs mm. uh, from an expenses point of view mm. I, I really appreciate my accountant though mm. he does a lot of work thank you thank you very much <laughs> he felt like he had, he had to say that because he's worried he's going to get screwed he's, over in his next bill he's really, really helped me out uh, uh, he looks after my accounts beautifully okay I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to include that part alright well that's fantastic. all for today thank you so thank much thank you ben. very much Mike and uh, hope to see you soon mm -hmm. and it's been a pleasure thank you take care everyone that's us out